0: Uh, the idea of prearranged marriage never sat very well in Western culture. I think uh, I can think of a few stories where uh, you know, there's that uh, a movie or a story or something where the sweet, young, pretty girl is destined to marry the middle-aged ogre uh, because their parents made some deal, a prearranged deal. Uh, in the ancient world, it was common and uh, it made me think of Fiddler on the Roof. If you're familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, that's one of the uh, things that they have fun with is the prearranged marriage thing. Uh, Tevi is the, the, the main guy in that. I just I adore that movie. But anyway, um, in the West, we're too individualistic, uh, and I think rightly so. Imagine, though, how many issues it would remove. All that dating would be gone. All of the Valentine's Day, you know, all that stuff. Uh, You know, uh, Match.com would be out of business, right? But um, we still wouldn't want it. When you believe in the reason I bring this up is when you believe in Christ as your Savior. God the Holy Spirit gave you a spiritual gift, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Spirit, which we we've been learning this week. God the Holy Spirit gave you a spiritual gift, and he also placed you in the body of Christ in a manner that gave you a certain job in the body of Christ. And he didn't ask you what you wanted to do. Uh, it's all prearranged. And so it's up to us to find out what God's will is for our life. And to, uh, if we don't do that, and we seek that independent way when it comes to God, we'll never really do any good work. Not as God defines good. And so it's extremely important that we accept the prearranged aspects of God's plan for us and not be independent from Him. So uh, let's go to First Corinthians 12. We're going we've, we've read our main passage enough times this week. I think we can forego it, save us 30 seconds. <laughs> and let's go to First Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, we we'll open up in prayers we do, let's be thankful and grateful for our Lord and Savior and for the word that God has given us that has set us so free and uh, showed us what, all that what God has done for us through Christ our Lord. And just a reminder that to, to really get the benefit out of God's word, to focus and concentrate if there's anything on your mind that is distracting to you, leave that aside. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to it again today. Thank you for another day in your world, your kingdom that, although it's not here on earth, Father, we know that we are members of it. All who have believed upon your Son as their Lord and Savior are all in union with him. All are and transferred into his kingdom. We're so grateful, Father, for your grace and mercy that made that all true We're so grateful for your love that actually enabled it to be so through the gift of your Son to the world. Uh, May we, Father, in humility come to know more, and may we also stand firm in the truth so that we take full advantage of this life that you've given us and glorify you uh, to the maximum. And We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in Matthew three eleven through twelve, the the idea of this a really short part, but it is separate out of you know what happens. There's one more section in chapter three that we'll look at, but this this part, which is the difference that John makes, uh, sets a contrast between his own water baptism and the Lord's baptism of the Spirit. He said, you know, I baptize you with water for repentance. Uh, and but, he says, but he, and he makes a great difference in that I'm not able to bear his shoes. I can't even hold his shoes. He's so much greater than me, and he, or really but he, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this baptism of the Spirit, we've seen it in three passages so far. Today's the fourth, and this will be our last one that we look at before we go back to the Gospel, is in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, So in 1 Corinthians 12:12 12, 12, Paul writes for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body though they are many are one so also is Christ for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free we were all made to drink of one spirit but notice the word one it's repeated over and over it's not not only that word but in this chapter the word same the same spirit did this the same spirit did that even though he did the same he did something different for you than he did for me in other words he gave you a different spiritual gift and a different ministry and a different part of the body that he gave to me it's the same spirit The one Lord, one Father, one Spirit. And this oneness is emphasized here in this part of this letter. Uh, So we're going to let that sit there and then come back to it. Um, But what is stated here? How does a person become a a member of the body of Christ? Actually, we could spend some time talking about what is the body of Christ. I mean, what is this? Obviously, it's not his physical body, uh, but it is, as we know, uh, the body of Christ is the church. And it's not just, you know, any church building and their membership list. It's every single believer on the earth right now, whether they go to church or they don't, they're members of the body of Christ. It's every born-again believer on planet earth. That is the body. Now, whether they neglect what they... (laughs) their place in the body, that's between them and God, of course. But that is the body. How does a person become a member of the body? The answer is the baptism of the Spirit. So he says it here very plainly. We're all baptized into one body by one Holy Spirit. Notice how the word one is repeated and repeated by Paul. Uh, Now, the second question that we can ask here that's answered for us is what does a person do? As a member of the body. All right, I'm a member of the body. What do I do? And this is why Paul is brilliant here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to, um, to use the imagery or the metaphor for the church that is a human body. And every part of your body has a function. And so it's the same as here. When a person is a member of the body, what are they there for? And the purpose is, they have a purpose. And the purpose is service. It's the service of the body, and as we'll see in this past. So we summarize that all together. The idea here in 1 Corinthians 12, and it is in a, in a, a decent section of chapter 13 as well, but this part of this letter, it's a fairly long letter, but this part of the letter, is re, Paul is revealing, if people are made members of the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Right? We didn't will this. When we believed in Christ, we were baptized by the Spirit, in which they are supernaturally unified in love and service to one another. And as we'll see, to make for us to function properly, we have to have agape love. And ain't no human being going to have that without supernatural power. So, again, as I mentioned the other day, this, the work of Christ on the cross is not just an example in how we are to live. It is an example in how we are to live. But what Christ did on the cross did something to us, supernaturally, actually did something. Call it organically. I know it's not physically because our appearances didn't change. Our DNA didn't change. But something, something fantastic happened to us. We were born again. So Jesus said, that's born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When you believed in Christ as your Savior, you were born again of the Spirit. And that, that gift that does that for you, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So baptism, again, it means uh, to identify. It means to immerse. And so what this is, is not a water thing. It's not a ritual thing. Uh, The water baptism of the church is not in view here. What is in view is this immersion or identification with Jesus Christ and the Father and the Son. So it's your unity into. And I actually like the image of immersing myself into the Trinity, even though I don't know if theologically that, that floats, to use a, a water pun. You know. So uh, Because you know, you're not actually like physically immersing yourself into God. But it is a a union. It's a union. It's an identification. Whatever word you want to use, you're with God now forever. And uh, what Christ is, you are. What Christ did, you get. I mean, it is the greatest deal that there ever could be. And every member of the human race who believes in Christ, it's faith alone. That's it. Faith in him, not works, but faith in him. Uh, opens God, allows God to do this to you. Now, there's a purpose to this as I state here. The purpose is that you're to serve one another, you're to work and uh, in your gift uh, in, the, in the way that God has designed you to do, and we have to all figure that out. Now, at Corinth... They were not doing that. But Corinth was established. So to understand this, we want to understand a little bit about Corinth. And the church at Corinth was established by the Apostle Paul. And there he laid the foundation of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ. After about a year and a half, Paul left. And it's because the Holy Spirit had more plans for Paul, not to stay at Corinth, but to leave. In fact, he left Corinth to go back to uh, Judea, to Jerusalem, And after Paul left, problems began to arise. And we find out, as we read this letter, that the problem in Corinth is a disunity that is caused by the blindness of sin. Now, we can say, you know, what's the problem with Corinth? Well, if you know, uh, they're immoral. That's a serious problem. Uh, they're envious of one another. They're jealous of one another. They fight with one another, and so on. And we could point to all of these sins. Uh, but what Paul does here is emphasize, and he does it right at the beginning of the letter and at the end, that, the prob- that what is happening in Corinth is that your sin, their sin, is breaking them apart. And because- when it breaks them apart, the power of God the word of God, the truth of God, the love of God, take any characteristic of God that is supposed to be in the church, it's no longer there. It goes away. Even though the church is still there, even though the people are still there, the manifestation of God amongst those people has gone away. <clears throat> Have you ever been in a relationship to a person, be an individual person or a group, You're part of a group that was fracturing, distancing, basically falling apart right before your eyes. Now, at some time in the past, it wasn't like that. No two people get together and say, Hey, I hate you. Oh, I hate you too. Let's get married. No group says, Hey, let's all get together and fight. I mean, I, I, I was thinking of maybe a debate group might do this. But if you're truly fighting... That debate group's going to meet once, and it's going to all fall apart. In our relationships, or even groups we've been in, the things were good, and then something went wrong. And in fact, sometimes we think we can pin down the time when those little cracks in the foundation actually started to show themselves. And this is what happened in Corinth. When Paul left them, they were standing on a solid foundation of the gospel, of the truth. Uh, Paul was there for 18 months, and he taught them day in and day out. I'm sure a lot. I'm sure somebody there, or multiple people there, wrote down what Paul had taught them and the doctrines they had. They had the doctrines. They also had an, a, a, um, a a great amount of spiritual gifts, and so they had, especially the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And as Paul packs up his stuff and he's off. To go, I'm sure Paul looked back at them and said, "Well, look at that. I have established, the Apostle Paul could say, a solid foundational church, a true church in the midst of one of the greatest cities in all of the Roman Empire. because Corinth was. It was a great city, a big city. And I and think about, I'm sure Paul was thinking, imagine the impact they're going to have on the city around them and the people around them. For the gospel and for the truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.10. Because something went very wrong. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you... Made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas, that's Peter, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And there Paul is definitely talking about water baptism. But notice what's important about the water baptism is the name. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, you know, uh, Paul here comes to understand that what something has gone terribly wrong. And there's a great disunity among them. How far away was Paul before the people there started to think, you know what, I'm a little better than that guy? I think I'm a little more spiritual. Maybe, you know what? I think I'm a lot more spiritual than them. And I got baptized by Peter. You only got baptized by Apollos. Peter's baptism is better. You know, he walked with Christ. You know what I mean? I got baptized by Paul. And this division began. It must not have taken long because this letter is written not very long after Paul leaves. Look at verse 26. Now, I'm going to read in the New Living Translation, so if you don't have the NLT, it'll sound a little different, but I like this translation for this passage. Paul is going to remind them here that none of them were chosen by God for their prowess, for their wealth, or for their wisdom. He says in verse 26, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead God chose the world God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. and He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Uh, God didn't choose you because you are powerful and wealthy so, or smart. So why are you, as a member of the body of Christ, baptized by Christ by the same Spirit, thinking that there's something special about you over and above another? But God didn't choose us because of any physical thing or uh, a mental thing or any kind of talent that we had. That was not the point or, or the, the uh, standard by which God chose us. The standard was our faith in Christ as our Savior. So, God united you with all other saints, with Christ, through the baptism of the Spirit. Through the baptism of the Spirit, there's one body and one spirit. One body, one spirit, in chapter 12. God united you with all other saints, with Christ, through the baptism of the Spirit. And he didn't do it because you were smart. He didn't do it because you you had something to offer him. He didn't look down at the earth and say, oh, I think I want... You know, like you're picking teams in the schoolyard. I always get picked last. I was, I'll say because I was younger. I was like one of the youngest kids. I remember at the local church that I used to go to, they had a basketball court in the, behind the church. And I used to go there almost every day to try and play basketball. And I'd always get picked last. I was young. I was pretty young. I wasn't that good either, you know. But did, did God... See, God picked the last people <laughs> because all the other people think they're too good for God. It's not that God then God went out of his way to pick the losers. It's just that people who in their own minds think that they don't need God because they're so self-sufficient. They don't choose. It, it would seem, I don't have numbers on this, but it would seem that people like that are not really ones who believe in the gospel. Because they don't think they need God. And so here in Corinth, they're like, oh, I'm better than you. Basically, that's what's happened. Paul left, and I'm better than you. Which is absolutely ridiculous. So now Paul's going to remind them. Look at verse 30. God has united you with Christ Jesus. See that? That's a baptism of the Spirit, though he's not going to use that language. Not yet. He will in chapter 12. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Again, this is the New Living Translation. For our benefit, God has made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scripture says, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. God freed us from sin, as He says here. When did God do that? When we were baptized by the Spirit, we were crucified with Christ. Colossians one, sorry, Colossians two, twelve, Romans six, three and four. <clears throat> we are washed by the blood of Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit united you with Christ forever, in verse thirty, and that changed you completely and eternally. And then Paul reminisces about how they were when he met them. When he first rolled into Corinth and met them, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 3. This is a nice reminder that Paul puts in his letter and he says, you know, when I first came to this city, you were fleshly people. Look at verse 3, for you are still fleshly. You know that uh, if someone runs into you after a, a number of years, someone who knew you years ago, and they say, wow, you haven't changed a bit. That's usually a compliment. But Paul's saying to the Corinthians, wow, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as fleshly as you used to be. Are you still, uh, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? Isn't this the way the world works? And haven't you been crucified? Haven't you walked out of the tomb with Christ, and now all of you, it seems very many of them, have walked out of the tomb with Christ and then said, Christ, see you later. I'm going back to the world that you delivered me from. That's exactly what they did. One of the places they like to go is this place. Now, this is an artist reconstruction. This place is not there anymore. But this is on a hill. It's called the um, Acro-Corinth. So, you know, in uh, in Athens, which you see there in Achaia. I'll get my handy pen here. Pen, pen, pen. So, here's Athens. And Paul had just left Athens to go to Corinth. Uh, and here's Corinth, and there between them is an, and I can never say this word, Isthmus, and that Isthmus <laughs> is the Corinthian one, and uh, that's right. It's Cor- Corinth is such, it was such an important port. It, it still is a, a marvelous city, but that's because the shipping, the shipping lane would go right through here. And Corinth, actually, you'd you'd dock on one end, you'd take your supplies, go to the other end of the Isthmus, and then you'd put them on another ship, and then off you'd go. And uh, so it was a super important place, a big place. But this up top um, right here is the Temple of Aphrodite. See, in Corinth, above the city was this huge hill made of a rock. And and Athens has the same thing. We call it the Acropolis, right? On the Acropolis is the Parthenon. People all go there now, you know, to visit it. And Corinth had a hill just like this. And on the top of this hill was the Temple of Aphrodite. This is actually from a video game that I played, uh, Assassin's Creed. We actually, if you play Assassin's Creed, you can run around in this place. What's beautiful? You know, the game's very violent, so I don't recommend it to most, but. they they recreate the scenes according to what the history that they know and the archaeology that they know. That's actually quite amazing to see it all. You notice as it looks down, it's on this hill and it looks down, this is all water over here. All this is water, which is this bay right here. So, beautiful place. But what's here is the Temple of Aphrodite. You might, if you know a little bit about Aphrodite, she's the goddess of... Love, romance, reproduction, and there are, according to the historian Strabo, Strabo, I don't know what his or whatever his name is. Uh, there's a thousand priestesses work in this temple. Priestesses, there's a Greek word for them too. Anyway, uh, they're not priestess. They, they ain't. They're not priests by any means. Now, <clears throat> when Paul left. Left. This is where they're going to this place. You pay good money to sleep with the temple prostitutes. And there's all other kinds of activities, I guess, you can do too. But that's the main thing. And this place made a lot of money for the city of Corinth. A thousand women are here that your men are going to to pay for you-know-what. So, with Paul no longer in the picture, that's where they're going. And I can imagine that some who are going there, used to go there. You know, he said you were fleshly and you still are. So when they became believers, when they became converted, it is likely we can imagine that there were those who used to go to this temple who didn't go anymore. But once Paul left and there wasn't that oversight of Paul, they decided to go back. And can you imagine the impact that would have on other believers in that church who never went to that temple. And those, the ones who are going are like, well, come on. What, why not? Why not? We are forgiven of all sin. They hang on to that doctrine. It's true that they hang on to it. We're forgiven of all sin. It's all grace, isn't it? So why don't we just go back and have some fun? Paul's not here. You know, the cat's away, the mice will play. Have you ever made bad decisions because the group you were in made the bad decisions and you went along with them? Have you ever made bad decisions because while you th- knew it was wrong, the group decided to do the wrong thing and you went with them? And there's a lot of that happening here. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6:13. Yet the body 6:13, yet the body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Notice, that's the physical body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. He has no doubt that the Corinthians are blessed. He says they will be raised. And why is that? Baptism of the Spirit. When he walked out of the tomb, we did. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? Baptism of the Spirit. Shall I then take away the members of the body of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh back in Genesis. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, this union that comes from the baptism of the spirit. Then he says, therefore, and here's the result of this, flee immorality. Flee it, run! Because this is not what you are anymore. This is not the life of Christ. And that will, you know, was the spiritual life of the Corinthians destroyed? You bet it was. And we can do the same to our own. We're not going to lose our salvation, but any uh, any of the results and blessings that come with the spiritual life, we will never taste. The one who joins himself with the Lord. So He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. There's the doctrine of redemption. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Because of who we are. Paul doesn't doubt at all who the Corinthians are. Isn't that amazing? I find that amazing. And why does Paul not doubt? Because he knows they've been baptized by God the Holy Spirit. He doesn't use the word baptism here. He's not going to use that until chapter 12. But the same same results of the baptism of the Spirit, Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and Galatians 3, it's all here. So while the crowd is running to the wrong thing. Just this is kind of a side note, but it it is extremely important because this is happening. It must be happening in Corinth that those who are being dragged along with the majority, what gives you the courage to say no to the sinning crowd? And, And that is to know that you are in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. You don't belong to the crowd. You belong to Christ. Right? And if you know that, you will have the courage to stand up against whatever pressure they put on you to run with them. So he said in verse 15 again, Do you not know that your body's a member of Christ, or members of Christ? And he's going to state why in chapter 12, which is the baptism of the Spirit. So please note, Paul left them in good shape on a solid foundation, And Paul is just aghast at what has happened at Corinth. How in the world could things go so wrong so quickly? And it's because they completely forgot or failed to put their faith in what they were in Christ or who they were in Christ. They are fleshly children even though they have been baptized into Christ. Paul doesn't doubt that they are in Christ at all but they're living completely opposite of what Christ would be or Christ is and so and all of us can have fall into this we have to constantly be reminded of it you know Paul is not Paul is going to remind and remind and remind in this letter and other letters and we have to be reminded as well that we don't think you stand lest you fall don't think that the A little bit of sin is okay. Uh, It's going to overrun you. All of us are sinners. None of us are going to be sinless. But your attitude towards who you are and what the uh, ramifications of that position in Christ, crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, now placed in a body, what's going to come up now is, All right, you are to live in a certain way because of who you are, but part of that life is your contribution to the body of Christ. The work that you do in your ministry, whatever whatever God has given you. God the Holy Spirit has given it to you. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning the things which you wrote, we don't have this letter, that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter and asked him some questions. He starts with that in chapter seven. That the first things that they that he addresses, coming from their questions, is about marriage. Within here is also circumcision, slavery, meat sacrifice to idols. They had questions about that, and they had questions about spiritual gifts. So. Paul uh, uses a great portion or a significant amount of this letter to answer these questions. And uh, we're not going to go through that, of course. We didn't have the time. But when Paul starts to answer their questions about spiritual gifts, which is in chapter 12, he sees. He's very brilliant, of course. And he sees the opportunity that when he's going to teach them about spiritual gifts, that he's going to use that as an opportunity to further instruct them about their unity as we saw at the beginning of the letter, they're completely divided. And that should not be because of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit enters you, enters every believer into the position in the body of Christ just as he wills, just as the Spirit wills. That position is a place in which even though you have different spiritual gifts, we have different spiritual gifts. Every... Even if two people have the same kind of spiritual gift, the manifestation of that gift is going to be different between both of them. And so the gifts themselves are going to be unique to each of us, technically, even though they have some similarities. The baptism of the Holy Spirit puts you in the body of Christ for this purpose, which is to serve. So consider a believer who understands the doctrine of, say, the baptism of the Spirit or other doctrines and is living well accordingly, but does not serve the body of Christ. There's an aspect of the spiritual life you're ignoring. And uh, I don't know how that the ramifications of that on the rest of your spiritual life, but it it can't be good. When God gives us all commands, we can't say, well, there's this portion, these commands I like, this one I don't, so I'm not going to do that. By the baptism of the Spirit. This is not an option. When it's done to you, it's done to you. It's like prearranged marriage. Like I said, you are put in the body of Christ for a particular reason. You have a ministry. You have a spiritual gift. You are to contribute. It's for the common good. So go to 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts. But the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries. And that word for ministries is the same word that's for deacon. The Greek word. So it means to serve. So there's a variety of services you could put. And the same Lord. And a variety of effects. The Greek word for effects is the word for works. So we could say there's a variety of works. But the same God who works all things and all persons. But each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. That word manifestation is uh, a word that means a showing forth, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Who's the common? The body of Christ. And it's to be good, not bad. (laughs) So there are varieties. This word variety means, you know, there's many of them, right? Obviously, like our word variety means. There are varieties of them. So there's different gifts, there's different uh, services that come from those gifts, and there's different works that come from the different services and the different gifts. And so there's a great amount of variety, and this is what God wants. I mean, look at the world around us created. Uh, God could have made this world any way He wanted. It is full of variety. And same in the body of Christ is variety. But variety can lead to division, and it's applied wrongly, and that's what the Corinthians did. Corinthians said, I'll show you variety. I was baptized by Apollo. You were baptized by Peter. I'm better than you. Or, I, you know, I know that we are born again and that we are in Christ, but I'm going to go to the temple of Aphrodite and do what I want. See, that's your division not only from the body, but your division from Christ itso- himself. You're always united to him in position, but you can turn your back on his way and his life and his truth. But though there is great variety, notice the repetition of same spirit, same Lord, same God. The same pronoun is used here in all three cases. Same Lord, sorry, same Spirit, same Lord, same God. So what we have here is the Trinity. Huh. And I mean, isn't that, it's really like, uh, you wonder if the Corinthians would find it. I, I know I wonder if, if I would find it if I didn't have the, the great teaching that I've been taught in the past. But, you know, you, the Trinity is, well, this is about unity, right? Even though there's a variety, we're supposed to be together, unified Not divisive, not fighting, but working with one another. And doesn't the Trinity do the same? Beautifully and perfectly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. One and the same. He says it again and again and again in this passage. He's pounding on it. Oneness, sameness, but amongst you all, variety. It's Marvelous. And so we have this body in which you do one thing, I do another thing, somebody else does another thing, but yet we work together in a unified fashion. It's exactly how God works. I mean, it should be exciting to us because God has given us the very life to work out here on earth that he has lived eternally. The the Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit by which they have differences but yet unified. No one understands the Trinity. It splits my head. But it's we get to work out the same thing. It's astounding. And yet... In Christianity throughout this world—that's a big yawn, right? Like, are people excited about that? I don't know. I don't hear it. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm down here in a basement all by myself most of the time. But it's—I yeah, don't—I don't know. The pastor isn't the rah-rah-rah guy. I, you know, if the things excite you, they don't. But I I pray and hope that anyone, all believers throughout this world, would comprehend that God has given you His very life. Live it! It's astounding what He's done for us. And you have it. Explore it. Pray about it. Study about it. I'm not saying that you don't. I'm just saying, go for it. All right. verse 12 again. For even as the body is one... Again, a repetition of that word, one. Even as the body is one and yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. I had to make a slide out of it, but I think you don't even need the slide. I didn't count the number of times he said one, but it's definitely more than one. He's one, one, not just the word one, but the the Greek pronoun that he uses is the same, same Lord, same Spirit, same Father, same Spirit, one, one, one. And that is the emphasis. And it doesn't matter your birth status. See, the, the Corinthians kind of bought into this. Well, I'm a little better than most. Are you really? Why? Because of your birth? Aren't you born in sin? What about your race? <clears throat> There's a campaign in the West to make the Anglo-Saxon white male uh, a demon, right? And then they and, and they say they're not because we're racist. Isn't that racist? <laughs> and a lot of people have already pointed that out. They don't really care. Uh, but on the left, in our day and age, race is the card, right? That's the Trump card. Oh, can't say Trump. They don't like him. But, uh, you know, that's what it's used. And, you know, here in the scripture, that like no Jews or Greeks. All right, that's Jew and Gentile. <clears> that's <throat> the entire human race. That doesn't matter. Slave or free. You know, Paul had to actually instruct them about slavery here in this letter. But... Uh, economic status. The slaves are the lowest of the low in society, and yet he says they are one in Christ. The slave and the master are one in Christ. What a gift. People have always wanted equality. It's our, the whole premise of our nation in the, uh, the Declaration of Independence. is the equality factor. And here you have it. If you want equality... Here it is. <clears throat> there are three, before we sum up everything here, there are three unities in the Bible. See, the baptism of the Spirit enters us into these. The first one's the Godhead, the Trinity. The second one is the unity of the persons of the Godhead with believers. It's they are in us and we are in them. The third, and it makes sense that there's three, right? The third is the unity of believers amongst themselves. And that's the one that suffers the most, that last one. I mean, my union with God, marvelous, right? Because, well, he's always perfect, isn't he? I mean, I think we all every once in a while get kind of mad at God and maybe throw a hissy fit at him as if he cares, (laughs) I have done that multiple times where I'm like, fine. And, you know, I'm hoping that's going to affect how he's going to treat me or give to me or whatever. It doesn't work. It never has. It never will. But it's this bottom one amongst each other. Because we have different personalities. We're sinners. We're at different levels of spiritual growth. We have different likes and dislikes. We have different uh, jobs to do in the body of Christ. Not everybody does their job. I've seen, I've seen division happen where people who are real go-getters in the church, they, they become uh, disillusioned because of the people who don't do anything in the church. As if that's any of their business. It's not. That's between people who don't live in their spiritual gifts and don't live in their ministries and don't live in the works that God has predestined them to do. That's between them and God. Don't judge them, because that's a dead-end road. It's a, it, all it does is draw you away from the, the thinking in the same mind as God does. That's up to him. Now, go to John 17. We're going to zip right back here, because Christ prays about all three of these. In just a couple of sentences, in uh, John 17, verse 20. There are three vast unities set in the Bible. The Godhead, the Godhead and believers, and the unity amongst believers. And Jesus Christ, in his priestly prayer, which is all of John 17, prays about all three of them. John says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. I've always loved this line because if you're wondering, are you in the Bible, there you are. Because when he says on these alone, he means his disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who believe in me through their word, which is us. We have believed on Christ through their word. Now notice verses 21 through 23, we're going to have all three of these unities. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now that's the, the, right there in that line. He says, I ask. This is a part of his prayer. Jesus gets what he asked for. It's, this, this is just hours before he is going to be strung up on the cross to die for our sins. Just hours and yet, here, and this is likely takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is under the greatest stress of his entire life, that he prays for you and for me. And he prays that we would be in them just as he and the Father are one. They may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. What kind of unity is there between the Father and the Son? It's a unity. We can't even imagine it. But yet, it's the same unity that he says, I ask for here in the hour, that my gravest hour, I ask, Father, and through the work that I'm going to accomplish, that you enter them into union. With us, And in the same manner, Father, as I am in union with you and you are with me. That's the unity we have with the Trinity. And then he's got to sow that. Every time you see sow that in the scripture, it's a purpose. There's a purpose to this, that the world may believe that you sent me. When we're so unified with God in our living and our thinking, and, and it just totally overhauls the way that we live and think because this unity is true i mean our faith has to be put in this because it is truly out of this world that this is true then the world will know that you're a disciple of christ and if you and i are unified in love the world's going to know that we're disciples of christ verse 22 now The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So now that's the third one, that we are one in the body of Christ just as they are one. Now, the unity between you and I is to be of the same caliber, the same manner, the same type, if you will, of the unity that is between the Father and the Son. That's pretty, I I mean, tongue in cheek, I say that's pretty close. And for that to be, I can't have any animosity towards you at all. I so, said, well, you know, that, that I can maybe kind of pull that off for people that I like. <laughs> exactly. But as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is going to say, you love those who love you. You're not my disciple. That's not what a disciple of me is. All the unbelievers love those who love them. My disciple loves his enemies. I can't have any animosity. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a member of this body, I can't have one ounce of animosity towards you. It has to be the union like the Father has with the Son. This is the reality. So in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you have loved me. Now that last component is what is necessary. What I said just a minute ago is I can't have any animosity towards you. Well really what I'm saying there, as Christ says it much better, is that I have to love you. I have to love you. Not with attraction love, not with human love, but with God's love therefore, you know, i got to get cracking in the spiritual life. If this is going to be a reality, I have to mature in love. <clears throat> so the baptism of the Spirit, then, gives you a particular function in God's family that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, chose for you. So I chose this picture because it's a bunch of eyeballs. It's kind of gross. But uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're all not eyes. I, my initial thing was to put up a picture of Mike Wazowski, if you know Mike Wazowski from uh, the Pixar movie Monsters, Inc. But Mike is one of my favorite characters out of that movie, but he's uh, he's got hands and feet. If you don't know him, then I'm just blabbering on. So uh, I cross that out. We are more uh, – we're incredibly var- varied. And being so varied, I have to accept – The place that the Holy Spirit put me. And Now, imagine, if I'm going to try and take a place that he hasn't given me, how am I going to be unified with the rest? Right, that decision itself creates animosity. That I'm trying to hold a position that I was never made for. How well am I going to do with that position? I'm not. If I'm given a position, I say, well, I don't like this position. I want to be something else then it's not going to work. How are you going to serve someone if you don't have humility? How many times are we going to see in the Gospel of Matthew, believe me, when Christ is going to say, speaking and teaching the disciples, that it's the least of you that's the greatest? The disciples are going to ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus, I'm sure he's just shaking his head going, man, I can't wait for you guys to figure out what in the world this life is really about because you don't get it. But it's the least of you. It's the servant." He's the great one. Hence, the love part. Um, Go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Just a minute here. The very last line of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul goes into, uh, in the rest of the chapter, in verses 14 through 30, that every member of the body is vital. No matter what your, and I could spend a whole class on that. I, I would actually love to, but we'll see if time affords. But whatever your place in the body of Christ, you must know that the ministry that you're given is, if you fulfill it, you are going to glorify God to the maximum, and your life is going to be magnificent. Don't seek more than what God has given you. Don't seek something different than what God has given you. I give you that advice from my heart and from the Scripture because I have sought things that God hasn't wanted for me and it's been uh, very hard on my heart, my soul. And then when I accept what God has for me, that bag of bricks has just taken off and I experience joy. So, way at the bottom, he says in verse 31, and I show you a still more excellent way. This more excellent way... Which seems like Paul is saying, well, I've just taught you this whole chapter on spiritual gifts, and now I'm going to show you a more excellent way. It almost seems like he's saying, I'm going to show you something better. But it's not better. It's an excellent or a more excellent, the Greek word is hyperbole, where we get hyperbole from. It means a way that's better. Better than what? Better than what the Corinthians were doing with their jealousy and their envy and their lust, this is better. And that better, which perhaps we know, is not love alone, not the gift alone, but love with the gift, meaning the gift of service. Chapter 13 is about love. That's where you get the famous love is patient, love is kind, and so on. And it starts in verse 4. He says, if I, if I can move mountains with my faith and I don't have love, I'm useless. And that's the more excellent way. The more excellent way is not love without the gift. It's not as if he's just moving and say, all right, I gave you all this teaching on the gift. Now forget about that. We're going to talk about love. What he's saying here is this gift and service that God has given you must be done with love. And that's the most excellent way. The most excellent way is love. But not just I'm my I love oh I love I just don't serve anybody, that's not love. That's your definition of love. I'm I'm love, but I don't serve the body of Christ. I'm I have all kinds of love, but I don't actually sacrifice my time or anything for people. That's not love. Agape love, you know what it is. Agape love is. The ministry, the service, and the gift in the body of Christ done with God's love. And that is the most excellent way. And that is the baptism of the Spirit. It's not an option. When God baptized you with the Spirit, he changed you completely. And this, what I have explained this whole week, is your life. You have no other option here. Anything else is, uh, according to God, not really life at all. So, implications here. The baptism of the Spirit. Crucified forever your old sin nature. Buried you, which means that the death that you died is absolutely complete. And raised you with Christ to walk in newness of life as a son or a daughter and an heir of God. And he placed you in the body of Christ along with all the other saints. You must live magnificently and in a holy manner, and in a unified way with all the members of the body. So, like, I didn't, right? Doesn't that sound like a lot. Doesn't that sound like, well, God, I didn't sign up for all this. I just wanted eternal life when I basically signed up, you know. Uh, I didn't know you had to do all this stuff, but this uh, this stuff is what God tells us is the life eternal. It is the life, the only life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for all things that you do and have given to us through your grace and mercy. There is no other life. If we disagree with that, we just have blindness in our hearts, and all of us do to some extent, Father. And therefore, we are grateful for your grace and your patience so that we may learn We know, Father, that through your grace and patience that we have time to learn. But that time will eventually run out. So we pray, Father, that we would see and know and understand in a timely way that we may live out this great plan and life that you have graced us with through Christ our Lord. And it's in his name. Amen.